0: You know, when we talk about disability, we're talking about how to structure the concept of equality to ensure that we have inclusive society. I want to be part of that conversation. I'm trying to contribute in the ways that I can through my research and bringing public awareness.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof Julie Mac. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: And today, we've got a really nice conversation with one of your colleagues at Windsor Law, Julie. We didn't have to go far for this. Dr. Laverne Jacobs is, I think,
2: three or four doors away from our office? Uh, yeah, four doors, I believe. definitely a neighbor. Yes. Uh, and we have been delighted to work with Laverne on a number of different projects that we've cooperated and collaborated on over the l- last few years. And we wanted to give Laverne an opportunity to talk about her work in the Law and Disabilities and Social Change Project, because Laverne is both an academic and an activist mm. on issues of disability rights. Um, with both, as she will explain in the podcast, a personal and a professional passion for this subject. She has been honored a number of times for her activism in this area, and most recently, she was presented with the Outstanding Individual Award in the annual Windsor-Essex Accessibility Awards, which recognize both individuals and organizations who really make a difference. And certainly the work that Laverne has been doing on disability rights and access to justice, which is what we're going to focus on today, has really made a difference. The other thing I think it's important to say about Laverne is that she is a very inspiring mentor for our students. She works with students at Windsor Law in her own teaching programs and also in the Disabilities and Social Change Project to really raise awareness of the importance of advocating for Canadians with a wide range of different disabilities and ensuring that they can also have access to justice.
3: Hello, Laverne, how are you? I'm fine,
0: thanks, Julie. How are you?
3: Good, good. Thank you so much for doing this. We know quite a bit about what you're doing, but uh, we want to know more. So I think this will give us a great opportunity to spread that message. Thank you. Say thank you for inviting me. I'm looking
0: forward to our conversation.
3: Now, you are heading up a project called the Law Disability and Social Change Project, and I am very struck by your motto, which is nothing about us without us. Now, this is an aspiration that we very clearly relate to at the NSRRP. but tell me some more about what it means for you, both in principle and in practice, at the Law, Disability and Social Change Project. Sure. Uh,
0: Nothing About Us Without Us is a motto that was used by the disability rights movement in the United States. Well, oh, it's been used in other places as well. I think uh, probably most recently, the disability community used it in pushing for change at the time of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, right. so right. while it was being developed. One of the main ideas associated with the motto is representation. More specifically, the motto was designed to bring attention to the fact that historically, people with disabilities have been represented by others in social yes. policymaking, making. Yes. Nothing About Us Without Us really asks, um, I guess, society to focus on the idea of respecting the rights yes. of people with disabilities. In practice, um, the project, the Law, Disability and Social Change Project, incorporates the model in, I'd say, at least a few ways. So we conduct research projects that focus on the voices of people with disabilities, and those usually deal with law and policy. We yes. try to incorporate. The concerns of members of the disability community. And we really try to bring what we call grounded research into the policy sphere. While we don't provide legal advice, we generate kind of information, you know, we're kind of a repository of information that can help empower the disability community.
3: Can we get into maybe a couple of particular cases, Laverne, that I know that you've been working on? And in particular, Two cases that you sent a report to the United Nations Special Rapporteur about, which highlight particularly egregious, I think I can say, examples Mm -hmm. of unfairness against people with disabilities. And these are both cases. That we know about here at the nsrlp and we've worked together with you on a little bit and the first of those two cases is the portman case and i wonder whether you can explain a little bit for the listeners what the portman case was about and why in particular you chose to focus on that case when you wrote to the UN Special Rapporteur.
0: In writing to the UN Special Rapporteur, we wanted to focus on, you know, some of the key cases that deal with access to access to justice and more specifically access to legal aid. And we really were concerned about the barriers that people with disabilities mm. are facing when they try to they try to access the system. Mm. So maybe just as a, a preface I'll say that when we think about access to justice for litigants with disabilities, it's really about accessing um, a complaint system that is accessible. We should have an accessible complaint system so that people can bring their complaints forward and have them dealt with appropriately. The Portland case, I'll start with that one as you asked, a situation where we see what I think is a significant gap, a significant failure in access to justice. So in a nutshell, Ms. Portman, she's a woman with disabilities who lives in the Northwest Territories. She required legal aid, as I think many Canadians do, but unlike the case of of many Canadians, she was a person with a disability where her disabilities interfered with her ability to actually bring the case forward on her own. To represent
3: herself, right. Exactly,
0: yeah. So if she didn't have the legal aid, she would have significant uh, challenges in in actually having her case um, effectively heard. So she sought legal aid in a couple of avenues that were available to her, one being the Human Rights Commission. So she went to the legal aid board (laughs) as well, and uh, they told her that, they were not able to provide legal aid for her type of matter, and that was a human rights matter. Essentially, they created kind of a blanket policy yes. indicating what kinds of matters they would you know, take care of and others that would definitively be cut out of the, uh, the and,
3: and And those that would be cut out included human rights matters. And, of course, she was arguing that it was a breach of her human rights not to take into account her disability and her ability to represent herself. Is, is that exactly,
0: right? Exactly. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And so Ms. Bartman's fight for legal aid, I think, is, you know, it's compelling and it's perplexing, yes, it is. right? So yes. here is a person with disabilities. We know that there is a whole um, kind of jurisprudence and, you know, regime dealing with human rights that indicates that individuals should be accommodated, yes. yet when she goes forward, she's basically told, no, you know, we're not going to even open the door for you. And some of the things that we argued, we argued that there definitely needs to be a policy change. Mm-hmm. Decision makers about who is going to receive legal aid, they need to focus on ensuring that people who have disabilities are also able to, you know, engage in and be able to receive legal aid as they yes. need. We also think that just generally more funding is needed for legal aid. And I I know this is something that you've pushed for as well, Julie. Yeah,
3: yeah. And also that people who have particular um, additional barriers and challenges, I mean, goodness knows everybody representing themselves without a lawyer has those. But people with Mm -hmm. additional barriers should have those taken into account when they're being assessed for public assistance, such as legal aid.
0: Absolutely. And I think that fits very well with the whole notion of um, access to justice under the CRPD. So the UN's Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities um, and Canada's uh, ratified this convention, you know, talks about effective access to justice. And so, you know, we we certainly should be making sure that we have avenues that And we've heard from many people, you know, as I'm sure you have as well, with disabilities who are trying to get through the system.
3: Well, in a minute, um, I'm going to ask you what the response was for this, but I wonder if, first of all, you could talk a little bit about the Gayton case, which is the second case I know that you put into your report to the special rapporteur. Mm-hmm. And of course, Judy Gayton has been a guest on the podcast in the past, and some of the listeners might have already listened to her podcast and will post it again um, with this one. And in particular, she really does crystallize some of these difficulties Enormous difficulties. Difficulties, Mm Difficulty is an understatement that people with invisible disabilities, such as Judy, who has a brain injury, find themselves facing when they're unable to afford legal counsel. But in her case, she was designated, in fact, as being incapable of bringing her own case to court as a result of her disability.
0: Yeah, no, um, so Judy Gaeton's case uh, really brings up a lot of issues that are quite prominent, I think, both in uh, disability studies and in, you know, access to justice world. As you said, she'd been uh, deemed legally incapable, and she also needed, of course, a, a litigation representative. Um, Yes, I mean, it
3: should be said she was relieved at the time, because that was when we had first met Judy, that she was deemed incapable because she presumed it it would mean
0: that she would be
3: provided with legal counsel. She didn't feel that she was able to manage this on her own.
0: And so she was provided with legal aid for several years, and that covered Mm -hmm. the the requirement for legal counsel. But then her legal aid lawyer left her. She was left with no representation, She went back to the board that was responsible for legal aid, but the board said they'd revised their policies, although she she hadn't been notified, Mm -hmm. and she was denied representation at that time. So you're right, she's caught in this conundrum, she doesn't have the representation, she doesn't have the ability to represent herself. There was an exception made, and she went forward and argued for an adjournment. And instead, her case was simply
3: dismissed and very quickly. Yeah.
0: So, Yeah, I think um, it was
3: 12 minutes or something yeah. like that order. <laughs> unbelievable,
0: yeah. right? Yeah. Completely unbelievable. I brought this case forward because, you know, this was a situation where someone is in dire straits. They really need mm-hmm. legal aid, but it's also a situation that speaks to questions about uh, the obligations of the legal aid system. I mean, how is it that someone can, you know, have their lawyer leave and the board doesn't seem to be aware of it? Uh, How can they change policies and not advise people who are in the system? Yeah. Yeah. And it also seems that, you know, through through all of this, you know, taking that a step further, if they did speak with um, Judy Gaten or another individual, they should have ways of uh, presenting this information that's understandable to those they're mm-hmm. speaking with, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a gamut of issues that are raised dealing with issues of, you know, responsibility, obligation, along with, you know, kind of the disability challenges. And if I can just say one more thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> that... There's also a question, a broader question that uh, about cap- capacity and how we assess capacity. I, I don't want to say that there were uh, challenges in the way that Ms. Gaten's capacity was assessed because I'm, I wasn't there, I'm not sure. But I think that there is a broader question to ensure that we have fair capacity assessment. Yeah. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that people are provided with uh, representation when they need it, but not that incapacity and disability are always linked.
3: Right. and And I think, you know, one of the implications as well of Judy's case that I've thought about a lot and I'm sure you have is we don't really have lawyers in the profession who specialize in working with people who may need a different kind of lawyer-client relationship as a result of yeah. capacity issues. And, you know, I think that her case really, really highlights that, that we just don't have that kind of range of skills yeah, um yeah, amongst yeah. amongst professionals to 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 enable Judy to find the right the right person to work with. Yeah,
0: her. no, definitely I think that we we certainly have a gap there. Um there certainly could be more lawyers that specialize in uh many of these issues.
3: And you know, I always find it as well so ironic that of course the reason that Judy faces being in the legal system is as a result of uh, an accident that caused her brain injury. And right. it's, you know, important, I think, to re- to remind ourselves that some of the people who are struggling through the system now trying to bring forward civil cases for damages are people who are actually trying to recover from the accidents that caused the injury that gives them the challenges that they now have. I
0: agree. That's so, such an
3: important point. Kind of a yeah. dumb whammy, whammy
0: really.
3: Yeah, earlier to me, Laverne, before we started recording the conversation, that you had seen uh, a preliminary response from the UN Special Rapporteur to your raising of these two particular cases, the Elizabeth Portman and the Judy Gayton case. So I'd be very curious to know what you can share with us about that.
0: Yeah. Well, the report has been published. It was essentially an end of end-of-meeting report, and what was very interesting to me about the report is that in the section on access to justice, Special Rapporteur reminded the government that when it comes to procedural accommodations for access to justice, talking about people with disabilities in particular, these accommodations are not the same as reasonable accommodations that one generally finds under a human rights law. Can um, I just
3: stop you a second? Procedural yeah. accommodations meaning... The set of the courtroom. Or yeah, you, you give me some examples.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's all of that. So Article 13 is quite broad, and so it deals with uh, the setup of the courtroom mm-hmm. to training of those who would assist uh, a person with a disability. You mm-hmm. know, um, court attendance or whatever. But you said so, that wasn't the,
3: side, the same as the legal obligation.
0: Yes, and so the legal obligation requires that you know the the respondent, the court, etc. Um, try to accommodate to the point of undue hardship. And Mm -hmm. the point that the UN Special Rapporteur was making is that when we're dealing with procedural accommodations under the article relating to access to justice, the undue hardship test, that threshold, actually doesn't apply. Mm. So... I found that really interesting because it really broadens things. It It opens the door. Yeah. So just
3: to be clear it's not necessary to show undue hardship to create the legal obligation.
0: Yes, yeah, so the legal obligation is there, and it can't be stopped
3: by saying, you know, we've reached the point of undue hardship. We we can't right. help. And, and just so that people understand, undue hardship is an argument that is used by those being asked to provide accommodation to justify why they cannot do this particular renovation or add this particular that's piece of technology because of cost. So that's undue I mean. hardship is, of course, anybody who has applied for an accommodation listening will know is usually the dollars and cents excuse for not accommodating people. And so the rapporteur is saying that you cannot use that as an argument to get out of Article 13. That's really interesting.
0: (laughs) It is. It is. And so um, I find it quite encouraging, and I'm hoping that might be picked up by advocates and others in the future.
3: Right. Right. Do we hear the convention being argued very often in cases in Canada, Laverne? At the moment. N- not so much. I think it's
0: probably increasing.
3: Mm, um, as people become I'm more aware. More aware yeah. of it. Let me kind of focus in a little bit now for the last few minutes here on you, because you are my very good colleague, and I know that you've worked tirelessly, ceaselessly, on disability and social justice issues for years and years. But I've never asked you, and I've never you know, really had this conversation with you, how did you first become Committed, so committed to this work. And, and what's pushing you forward to keep doing research and pushing for change?
0: Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for asking. I think that, you know, I've been both personally and academically interested in disability issues. So personally, you know, I experienced a, a spinal cord injury over a decade ago. Mm. And because of that injury, you know, I, I use a mobility device. Um, And I became very acutely aware that many of the terms that I thought, and I think many of us sometimes think have meaning, are sometimes devoid of meaning or really Mm. that substantive equality piece is missing. That's so so
3: interesting. Give me an example of one of the first ones you noticed.
0: Yeah. So one example is transportation. This is probably one of the reasons that I write about transportation inequality quite a bit in my research. But we see buses with low floors, we see uh, accessibility symbols, etc., But, you know, if you try to, there there are numerous cases of people who try to get on buses, but buses pass them by. Um, There are instances of other types of transportation they try to take. Taxi service, for example, can be, um, well, these days it's so, but can be exorbitant. There are very few wheelchair-accessible taxis on any taxi fleet, especially in our region. Oddly Um, any.
3: And especially with Uber and Lyft, which are basically just regular saloon cars. I mean, Mm
0: -hmm. how do you even
3: get a a wheelchair-accessible taxi?
0: Uh, Yeah, they say that there's some systems, but I don't know that they necessarily are running in Windsor. But transportation, something as straightforward as getting from point A to point B, you know, became extremely complex, you know, and it affects a wide swath of people. Yeah, so that's one example. And there are numerous other services, facilities, you know, everything from healthcare to some of these uh, structural issues relating to supporting parents with disabilities, um, issues relating to bullying of of children and and adults. Mm. There's a gamut of of issues that I think are really quite concerning.
3: And you found that once... You were in in the position that this was your experience as well. It sounds like your eyes were open to all kinds of things. My eyes were open to many things, and I I
0: really think that this is an important set of conversations to have. I think that, you know, when we talk about disability, we're talking about how to structure the concept of equality to ensure that we have inclusive inclusive societies. Yes. And I, you know, I I want to be part of that conversation. Going back to your first uh, question about the motto, nothing about us yes. without us. I was I, just yeah. thinking
3: that. Yeah. yeah,
0: I I'm trying to contribute in the ways that I can through my research and being public awareness and things like that.
3: Well, I think that it's so important for people to be able to learn from you. Laverne on what you've said in this podcast and, and, and what Judy and others say when they speak up about their disabilities and I really appreciate your time on this today. Thank you.
1: I found this conversation so interesting. I feel like I say that after every... <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> do, but Dana, true. but that's okay. We're it's just, okay. You're good at picking such interesting people. It's so We naturally. have
2: wonderful people on yeah, the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the first things that I made a note about that struck me in your conversation with Laverne was her statement, I really liked this, that it is important not to assume that capacity and disability are the same mm, thing. And mm. I think that's an assumption that, unfortunately often gets made around people with disabilities.
2: Right, right. I mean, there's so much in that statement. And certainly I feel like, you know, my understanding of this issue was literally at zero Mm -hmm. five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have learned a lot from some very important people, including Laverne. The way that we think about capacity in the legal system is about your ability to make informed and reasoned decisions. And obviously, that has so many different layers to Mm -hmm. it. It's so dependent on really effective tests for what that means, because there are different kinds of decisions that people make in the legal system. And they face different levels of stress, which could also affect their capacity to make those decisions. And they also, of course, will want to exercise autonomy as much as they possibly can in making decisions. And to somehow equate that in a very primitive way, which I think I probably have done in the past. I think we've all been guilty of it. With people, you know, who have cognitive or physical disabilities is obviously, you know, very unsophisticated. Mm-hmm. And I was appreciative that Laverne pointed that point out to us. And I think it's something that we are all still trying to learn about inside yeah. the context of legal decision making. Mm-hmm.
1: As I was saying to you before we started recording, this was a concept that I didn't quite get at first. And then as I listened, I I think I understood a bit better, but I'd still like to make sure that we have clarity around this, is the idea of undue hardship Mm. in the legal realm. And so as I understand it from what you and Laverne were saying, the UN special rapporteur has said that the undue hardship attest should not apply to get out of accessibility requirements. Right, right. No, it's a really
2: interesting one, actually, Mm. and possibly it's the most interesting thing that was said in this particular um, UN response. Uh, Canada is a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, and what the rapporteur was saying is that the convention does not recognize undue hardship as, let's put it bluntly, a let out Mm. from legal responsibilities under both federal and provincial law in terms of accommodating people with disabilities. And people who have tried to ask for accommodation may well know, and we certainly talk about this in our people with disabilities primer, that one of the arguments that can be used to counter their claim for accommodation is undue hardship, which basically translates into dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. Lots of different practice, but it gives a let out if it's going to be an expensive accommodation. And what the UN rapporteur was saying is as a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, Canada does not have an option to say undue hardship overrides the right to accommodation. Now, as anybody listening to the podcast who works in the area of international law will know, it's difficult to translate a statement like that into reality, mm-hmm. but I think it's a very important statement and one that I really want to showcase here.
1: Yeah, and I think that that relates to this idea that Lovern was talking about of the idea of there's a difference between substantive equality, which sometimes mm. is kind of more just window dressing, mm. and what comes down to actual practical Uh, accommodations and accessibility and she gave the great example of of transportation
2: and the idea that you can have something that looks like it's going to provide accommodation for people but if there are too many exceptions and one of those exceptions includes how much money it's going to cost Mm. then you're not necessarily going to have it practically realized
1: this conversation led me and particularly that idea as i was listening to your conversation with Laverne, I started thinking about another podcast that I listen to very often called 99% Invisible. And if you're not listening, it's a really great show. But they did an episode, I think maybe some months ago now, uh, and I looked it up to make sure I got it right. It's called Curb Cuts. And the premise behind the episode was the idea of universal design. And Mm. the example of Curb Cuts is that in the 60s and 70s, there was an activist, uh, a man using a wheelchair who spent several decades trying to push for the idea that municipalities ought to be providing sloped grades down into the street from the sidewalks and they call those curb cuts and of course this is what is everywhere now we can't imagine our city streets without them but it took a lot of advocacy and pushing before municipalities and governments saw that they needed to provide these. And of course, the, you know, originally the idea was this accommodation would accommodate people in wheelchairs, but almost instantly... Interestingly, what started happening was many, many more people right. were making use of them for all sorts of reasons. So people pushing baby strollers or mm. pulling a wagon or even just elderly people who, who you know, help getting who needed down help. The curb. Yeah. And now I think we don't even think of them necessarily as just an accessibility no. thing for people no. with. Disabilities, we're just used to them as part of our daily lives. And another good example I think of a lot and use a lot is automatic doors. And so the concept here is universal design and the idea that accommodations that are made in the first place for a small population of people with a particular disability almost always end up benefiting many, many more groups of people. And
2: I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about this is how um, much it undercuts this idea of undue hardship. I mean, the undue hardship argument is, well, we're just doing this for for a particular group of people. people. And I think what universal design reminds us is that we don't really know the extent to which, and I think this is one of the things that comes through in Laverne's conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. she talked about how Her eyes were opened once she became somebody who who had to rely upon a mobile device. That comes through all the time, that this, when it's practicalized, these kinds of accommodations are actually important, not just for self-represented litigants with disabilities in the legal system, but for all kinds of other people too.
4: In other news... Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls released its final report last Monday. The National Inquiry officially began in September 2016. The federal government tasked the inquiry with identifying the root causes of all forms of violence against Indigenous women and girls and to make recommendations on what needs to change. The recent report consists of two volumes and a supplementary report specific to Quebec. As Canadians, we have a duty to understand the effects of colonialism on Indigenous peoples, effects that are continuously felt to this day in tragic and devastating ways. This includes findings of a rate of at least three deaths of Indigenous women and girls per month resulting from homicides, suspicious deaths, and deaths in police custody or while in the care of the child welfare system. The final report is comprised of the truths of more than 2,380 family members, survivors of violence, experts, and knowledge keepers, shared over two years of cross-country public hearings and evidence gathering. It delivers 231 individual calls for justice, directed at governments, institutions, social service providers, industries, and all Canadians. We can no longer afford to be complicit. And if it's a question of not knowing enough about this topic, the final report and other resources on the Inquiry's website are a great place to start. For our second story, the Faculty of Law at the University of Manitoba can now offer French language legal education for law students in the form of a full certification program, thanks to financial support from Justice Canada. Last week, specifically on June 5th, the Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada announced the Government of Canada is supporting the development of a common law certificate in French at the University of Manitoba. The Department of Justice Canada is providing $768,000 in funding over four years, from the 2018-19 to the 2021-2022 years. And this is through its Access to Justice in Both Official Languages Support Fund. With this funding, The University of Manitoba will also conduct activities related to the assessment and certification of the language proficiency of students, and undertake activities to improve the capacity of justice stakeholders in Manitoba to offer services in both official languages. We've linked to an article from the University of Manitoba website that shares some more details. Lastly, in case you missed it, NSRLP published another article on SLAW.ca, Canada's online legal magazine. This article was written by Julie and research assistant Megan Campbell, who you might remember from an earlier episode of the podcast. The article examines the way restrictions have been imposed on self represented litigants thus far and argues that more restrictions will escalate legal problems further. The article notes the current judicial strategy appears to include punishing SRLs for their unintended mistakes, such as with vexatious litigant status and court restriction orders, and that this strategy is also making the public angrier and even more indignant at their treatment in Canada's access to justice crisis. The article examines the impacts of applications for leave to return to court in Alberta, noting that among 50 court restriction orders in Alberta between 2016 and March 2019, NSRLP was unable to find a single successful application for leave to return to the court. The article concludes by discussing the need for balance and access in the context of judicial fairness. We've linked to the version of the article on slaw.ca, and we've also reproduced the article on our own website. Be sure to take a look. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a recording of the joint keynote address that Julie McFarlane and Bernie Mayer presented at the Family Peacemakers Conference, hosted by the Ontario Association of Family Mediators and Ontario Collaborative Law Foundation.